Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we're talking about gardening, but in a way and in a place that you probably wouldn't think when you first think of gardening. The name of the book is Ripe for Change, Garden-Based Learning in Schools, and we're here with the author, Jane Hershey. Welcome to the EdCast, Jane. Thank you, Matt. Jane, I bet you a lot of people probably don't know the the history, the long history of school gardening and the fact that it's actually a movement. Do you mind providing us with a little bit of that context? Sure. Well, school gardening is definitely a movement. I would say it's it's movements. It's um it's a very old thing. There's been school gardens for uh, hundreds of years. Um, and looking back at the where some of the the um, uh, the School gardens have roots in our education system. I would start with kindergartens, which are literally gardens for children, um, and both metaphorically but also physically a place for children to explore nature and gardens. Um, that was uh, Froebel um, a long time ago. Uh, Montessori used uh, school gardens, and the Montessori method still really relies on garden-based learning in their curriculum. Um, John Dewey um, used gardens um, in his progressive education movement. So long, long history of school gardens. The, the, the garden movement I would say we're currently in, there was a revival um, about 30 years or so ago uh, with a different emphasis on um, edible education. Um, and I think that's really what um, the unique feature of our current school garden movement is right now, that it's really driven by an interest in um, food and making sure that kids know where their food comes from and the link between um, kids knowing about food and the and making healthy food choices. And some of that obviously relates to your work uh, at City Sprouts. You're the founding director. City Sprouts is in Cambridge and Boston. Uh, a little bit more about what City Sprouts is, what it does, and how it connects with this. Yeah, City Sprouts began 15 years ago in Cambridge in a couple of schools in Cambridge Public Schools. And I was in that first founding group of um, parents and teachers and a school principal that uh, really felt um, inspired to bring in garden-based learning and some school gardens, really integrate it with school culture in a way that it hadn't been uh, integrated before. Um, one of the, the things that moved us was an idea that we, needed to, we really wanted to make school gardens and garden-based learning something that was really accessible to all kids. There were some great models for school gardens um, around the country. Alice Waters in Berkeley, California, was an inspiration for us and for many. Um, but we were really thinking, how could we make this um, institutionalize it, really make it part of how all teachers teach, and make sure that that garden experience was something that all children uh, experienced. So we took a slightly different approach of uh, really working closely with teachers not introducing a garden-based curriculum, but working with teachers to use the curriculum they already had to use and extending those lessons and units out into the garden. Um, and that was a little bit of a different approach. It was an approach, um, as I talk about in my book, that we weren't alone in doing. And it's really interesting, fascinating to see different movements around the country that all were trying to address that issue in slightly different ways, but really makes garden-based learning accessible to all kids. 
I think our audience would be really interested to know some of the logistics and if you could just sort of paint a portrait of what these gardens look like, how they kind of come into place. You talked about the model in Berkeley. Um, walk us through what what this garden, how big is it? What are you growing? And then kind of the, the interaction between the students and the garden throughout the course of the day and the year. Yeah, I want I want the, I want listeners to really think of um, uh, at least two different kinds of gardens because school gardens and a schoolyard really reflect that schoolyard. And as, uh, every parent um, and everybody who walks by a school knows those look radically different from each other. So on the one hand, here's a garden with large pots in the playground, on the edge of the playground, with a couple of very simple beds. The compost bin in the corner, a water catchment system like a, um, a a rain barrel, and that might be the school garden. In another garden, um, in Cambridge, for instance, the Moore School, the whole front of the of the schoolyard has been grassy spot has been dug up, um, and there's a garden there that really looks a lot more like we think of a garden. But in both of those places, kids are walking by it as they walk into school in the morning, um, often with their parents. They're stopping to show their their families what they planted or peeking to see if the strawberries are ripe. Once school starts, classes come out, kindergartens, third grade, fifth grade, middle school, coming out to do um, a writing lesson in the garden or looking in the compost bin for the life that's uh, living in the, in the soil there, turning over stones, um, measuring pea plants, every little way that it can reinforce or enhance the things that they need to be learning in the classroom. Um, and then after school, too, the school continues to use those, those gardens for uh, family potlucks, um, for places for teachers to gather, uh, that neighbors and families see as they walk by the school. It really softens the, the difference between the institution, the hard institutional look of a school in the neighborhood. It's a, it's a bridge, so to speak. Yeah, I think in your book, too, you talk a little bit about the partnerships between the schools and the nonprofit organizations. About It's really a communal and community-based partnership and collaboration, this growing of the garden. Yes, it is. <laughs> and I think, you know, the garden is just such a, um, a uh, at the center of, um, of a confluence of things, of um, children's learning of uh, food systems and urban agriculture and nature, trying to be sure that um, we protect and still have spots of nature um, in our urban environments. So uh, I think every school, whether it's in the country or the city, needs a school garden. We've really focused on urban school gardens and what does it take to work with teachers in um, low-income or high-need urban districts and in neighborhoods where there's not much green space to really make those gardens um, sustainable and really accessible to kids. One of the things we get asked about a lot is uh, vandalism. Like, oh, well, what happens to that, you know, that garden, um, you know, when the kids are gone or, you know, in the, in the summertime? And I would say in 15 years, we've had remarkably little vandalism in the garden. And, uh, you know, in Boston and Cambridge and all of the neighborhoods, it's really been... Um, interesting to see how much neighbors want to protect that green space um, as well as the school. Yeah, it seems like it's a, a real place of respect. I think our, our listeners would also be interested to see that in your book, um, you illustrate that the garden and the sort of lesson planning related to the garden 
you've found a way to tie it to both Common Core state standards and next generation science standards. Explain a little bit about that connection. Yeah, we're at a really interesting time educationally in this country, um, and it's it's a challenge. I think everybody knows and feels the challenge. Um, it's also an opportunity, and garden-based learning is an example of experiential education that uh, research shows, past experience shows, is really uh, an important approach to reach a real diversity of, of learners. Um, so there are already connections in the Common Core and in the Next Generation Science Standards. Um, I think that part is maybe the clearest part of it. I think the more difficult piece and one that City Sprout struggles with and the other organizations in the book that I described also struggle with is giving teachers enough time to actually use it. And it's not just the garden, it's any experiential education resource. Teachers need the time to, to use that. It's, a, it's, a, it's an investment in our, in our kids, um, and we, I think it's just really critical that we figure out a way to make that happen. Your favorite part of gardening, everyone, you know, I have a garden at my home too, and I love growing tomatoes and going out and picking the ripe cherry tomatoes just makes my day. I'm curious, both your favorite part of going out into the garden and then also amongst all the students that you've met in all these years, what do they like to do most? Get their hands dirty or pick uh, strawberries? Yeah, great questions, Matt. Well, I'll start with um, what I see. Well, maybe I'll start with myself. I'm, I just love compost. <laughs> it's hard for me to get beyond the compost bin. Um, I find it fascinating, um, a good, healthy compost. I, I like the way it smells. Um, I like putting my hands in that moist, dark earth. Um, I, I, I like everything about composting. And I'd say a lot of kids do, too. And it's really hard to predict what um, what what children are going to be drawn to compost in the way that I am. It's almost as if we have a compost gene <laughs> and what kids won't. Um, so compost is, uh, I think, a, a top go-to for a lot of us. Um, among the plants, strawberries, of course. And I think it's not only the way they look, they taste, but it's the way they look. It's like looking under leaf and finding that beautiful red little jewel. Um, and interestingly, chives. Um, as one first grade teacher said, my first graders love chives. Um, she says it's not just because they come up early uh, and they know them because they're around in the garden so much, but they, they know their name. They're interested in tasting them. Um, so I think it, there's some real surprises for what kids get drawn to. And it really seems like the things that they have enough time to, to, to play with, chives and other herbs come up early and stay up later in the season, um, and they're, you know, they're accessible. You can taste them and touch them and um, pick them and smell them. And um, that full sensory experience, I think, is something that a lot of kids really, really are drawn to and need. Jane, you're making me hungry and you're making me glad it's springtime. <laughs> Good. I'm glad, too. I'm looking out the window, and it's gray, but you know what? Spring is on its way. Jane, if people want to learn how to start a garden in their own school, if they want to learn more about this, obviously they can go to hepg.org and pick up Ripe for Change Garden-Based Learning in Schools. Um, where else can people uh, go to find out more information about your book and about uh, this garden-based movement? Um, well, I'm... I'll Point them to my book. Um, I have an, an 
uh, commentary out in Education Week, um, which might be a, a shorter way for people to, to tap into it. There are exciting things happening around the country, um, and I'm, I'm eager not only for people to, to take a look at what I've said, but I'm really eager to start a conversation and learn what other people are saying, too. So um, at our citysprouts.org website, um, at your child or your neighborhood school, I think it's always worthwhile to go to the school and see if there's a garden there and talk to some teachers. This is a movement, and we really, really need uh, teachers at the center of it. Um, so I hope that people feel inspired to start conversations with, with teachers and, um, and help get teachers what they need so that this really becomes opened up for all kids. Fantastic, Jane. Again, the name of the book is Ripe for Change, Garden-Based Learning in Schools, HEPG.org. Jane, thanks for so much for what you're doing for, for kids, for the environment, and for humanity in, in, in general. It's a, it's, a, it's a good thing you're doing. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening.